When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adjust Your Tracking and all the Playlist podcasts are sponsored by MUBI, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. MUBI's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. Visit MUBI.com slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. And movie being what it is, they're always rotating different titles there every day. Uh, and it being October, they're appropriately uh, doing a bit of a horror, uh, in their vein, more of an art house horror uh, sort of series where they're dropping a lot of cool movies worth checking out. Uh, a few recommendations. Claire Denis, uh, her film Trouble Every Day, starring Vincent Gallo. Uh, that is definitely one to check out. A film we've talked about on the podcast before called Angst, a 1983 Austrian film. Uh, it's one of Gaspar Noé's favorite. Uh, it's an incredible film. That's on there now. You got David Cronenberg's Rabid. And then just today, uh, as I record this, the driller killer, Abel Ferreira's uh, infamous film from the late 70s is on there. That plus more than 20 other titles are on there. So uh, check all that out. We thank Mubi for their sponsor of this show and our others. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, I believe you uh, you have something to say. Uh, I, I mean, slow down. It's not like not, I don't have a declarative statement to make. Um, I just wanted to share with you, Eric. I know I briefly did via text last week, but uh, uh, last last Thursday I just decided to you know outside of any any errands or work I had to do, I was like, I'm gonna just have a weird movie day, and so I. Decided to go into the valley, and there was a art installation I was meaning to check out in Burbank. Um, it's just right over the hill from me, um, and it's a, it's called Slashback Video, where a team of people, I believe, led by Ryan Turek, um, who like created painstakingly created a video store interior, like mock up with like the actual videotapes mostly uh are horror films from like the 80s and early 90s but like the the evocative art that we love and so it's just like this you walk into this time warp and uh it's just like everything's intact there's a there's a cashier station there's a cash register there's a video game off in the corner you can play and just like shelves and shelves of these movies that like have become so rare and like they're they're like box art is so just like it triggers so so much nostalgia that like you're strictly forbidden not to touch the videos but like muscle memory was just compelling me to reach out and be like they have this oh my god so like i had used a lot of restraint and it was just like while i was walking around it which was empty because it was like it's an art installation you like you you do have to pay to get into it uh but it was just like it was bizarre, like walking around this like painstakingly recreated thing that like clearly there's enough nostalgia for to compel like the guy who put it together and to compel people to go see it. But there's not enough nostalgia to translate to keep that industry alive anymore. But it was like it was so impactful to people at a certain time that like they they would want to return to the sort of like comfortable womb of that environment even though like we just don't have enough energy to keep that system alive in this day and age except in nostalgic forms mm. and the, the movie we're going to discuss today um which you've discussed on, a, on another podcast on the playlist mm -hmm. uh blade runner 187 what's the number <laughs> 2049 you got it um this is a sequel 35 years after its original and um the original was like a movie that like 
was able to get a, a notoriety after itself was considered a bomb. It was able to get like a kind of a cult legendary status and build and gain momentum through time and through like uh, people's access to seeing it on video, seeing it on cable and having it kind of build its own legacy and sort of be something that people return to as opposed to just toe tagging it at the time as a bomb and therefore dismissing it into the gutters of history. (laughs) Like there was a... There was a possibility of movies kind of building their own legend over time. And uh, it's strange to be like, it was always a risky endeavor to take a movie, create a sequel out of something that like in its initial release was not successful. It wasn't even like necessarily critically successful. I think it was impressive to a lot of people, but I Mm. think, also, people were just kind of shrugging about it, like, I don't know, this movie is really navel-gazy. Not a term I actually saw, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's up its own ass. Again, not a term I saw. But, I think uh, people found it boring probably at the time, which yeah, is... It, yeah, because it's, its pacing is really unique. And uh, But, like, it was, like I said, it was always going to be risky to make a sequel. And from the initial trailers of Blade Runner 420 that it was like clear that um, it like this was an ambitious on top of it just being a risky undertaking. It was an ambitious visionary like uh, endeavor. And it was like, uh, Oh, the Dennis Villeneuve who like became the, he, he fell into like the pocket of like the, the director slot very like comfortably where everybody's like, who Oh, okay. All right. He makes, he makes sense. Like, especially after arrival, I think he was already, you know, clearly chosen for the director slot for Blade Runner. People are like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. And, but like still risky. And now we are on the tail end of the opening weekend of the movie, which $30 million, which is what the movie ended up earning. It's not nothing, but it's apparently not enough. And it's also, (laughs) uh, like, you're able to see that the movie is now toe tagged as a bomb yep. like three days after its release. Uh, yeah. One day after the release I saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I saw Saturday. They can, <laughs> they can was... estimate basically on its sort of like first day earning. Like if it keeps up this as it's tracking, you know, not adjust your tracking, but like <laughs> as it's, as, as the movie tracks it's on it, it's, you know, they were hoping for a $50 million opening. Yeah. And then it would continue to build over the month of October. But like it's it's just a strange time that we live in where, you know, what catches and what doesn't, because like this seemingly was as risky an endeavor as, you know, a Mad Max sequel. Mm -hmm. And that movie, same company, actually, Warner Brothers, Mm -hmm. that movie hit and it hit because it was of, of a certain quality. It was a very impressive movie. Um, but so is Blade Runner. So mm. is Blade Runner 2049. I'll stop calling it by different numbers. Um, <laughs> Aw. Blade, Blade Runner Y2K. All right, that was a lot of fun. But, uh, Keep going. Uh, but, you know, like, we, we can actually get into, you know, look, looking into the film itself and not just its box office reports and its uh, predecessor's legacy. But uh, it's just, it's weird that, like, now we're at, we're at a point where cult films like they're less likely to happen you know because like we need to be telegraphed what a movie is what it's doing what it provides for us like so much ahead of the time like months and months ahead of time we need to be like what is this coming out what's this about what am i going to get from it you know i have like a lot of friends who are some of the most intelligent and articulate people i know just like shrug their shoulders at a trailer and be like, I don't get it. I don't understand what it's about. Therefore don't care. What? I don't. Yikes, man. This is a visual medium. Like, is there enough that's compelling about the trailer visually that you're, you're able to be sold. But I think we need to be hammered into what something is, why it is what it is. 
and we need like, to be told it's important as opposed to looking at the pictures you're you're bringing up yeah, and being and, like wow i need to see that like, and having the space to discover it mm-hmm. which like that's getting as much as the internet is like the ultimate open playing field of having space to discover everything we therefore have too much to discover and we need to have it narrowed down for us like why do i need to see this how come how much time uh, i don't have time forget it yeah. You know, like there there isn't that luxurious space of wandering through a video store and being like, what's this one? Oh, I remember this one. It was kind of frustrating. Yeah, you know what? I want to try it again because I a- feel like it got the best of me. You know, <laughs> it got there you. just isn't that anymore. There's just like, don't have time. Don't care. Don't want right, right. There was like a there was like a purity to being open minded in a video store. And if you you like if you're like me or Joe, you liked the idea of getting lost and just looking at the shelves for an hour. I could I could freaking walk around a, a video store for an hour and easily lose that time and just be like, yeah, like you said, the enjoyment of like looking at the art or being like they have this there 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 was a different maybe that's why cult movies have changed and the evolution of cult movies or how something becomes a cult movie these days is so different. Is be- yeah. yeah. How do they anymore? Like, uh, yeah, because so yeah. the movies of that would typically be kind of like discovered as cult movies, you know, they're, they're, they're relegated to kind of like smaller theatrical releases or VOD releases. And I think that that marginalization eliminates a certain crossover appeal or potential. Yeah. You know, like a potential for like crossover, which is what cult ultimately becomes not a crossover in terms of like a huge popularity, but in terms of a growing sect of a popularity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's super weird. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, it stumps me. It really does. It's, it's, it's just an example of like how, how cluttered the mar- the just the movie marketplace is these yeah. days, you know, that people have to shut out. Like you said, I, I noticed that too, man. Smart people that know a lot like movies will will almost reject something before they've even given it an opportunity or or even considered it. It's it's very strange. I mean, I did you get the sense before Blade Runner twenty forty nine opened that like just you know anecdotally from from people you were talking to from your friends, did you get the sense with that with this one? Because I I did. But then, of course, I got sucked into the all the internet like excitement for it over the last couple yeah. of weeks as reviews started coming. Yeah. I was like, "Is this going to be a big hit?" And then I and then I was so deflated by freaking Saturday when box right. office writers are talking about it being a bomb. So, yeah, it, it's also interesting how quickly like a tide can turn because like right. I did similarly. I I got a sense from friends who were just like, "I don't really like the original." I'm like, "Okay, but do you appreciate the original?" Because like there's so much to appreciate, like just the, the scope and scale of it, the vision that's gone on to like influence so many things. And like, and they're like, yeah, yeah. Begrudgingly they're, they're sort of like, yeah, no, I do. I do appreciate it. And then like you, there was like this sort of like snowball effect of like reviews coming out. And then I saw it at, uh, again, I'm not bragging, but I saw it in the dome at the arc light. Nice. And it's a, it's a big room. It's a giant room. And it was, I believe sold out. And so there was that sense the night before, like the official opening day that it was like, it was packed with people. Now I'm in a movie city, a movie nerd city on top of movie city. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just, it's kind of hard to gauge sometimes. Sure. You're like, oh, this is like people in middle America are going to be going to the mall to see this when it's just like, <laughs> that might not be true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that bubble burst like instantaneously. And then, you know, everybody kind of seemed to pile on. We're like, well, yeah, of course it's going to fail. And you're like, right. All right. Well, can we actually, and that started to like, I don't, I don't reflect on the, the feeling about the movie itself, which like, let's now take a look at the, the film itself, let's you know, do it. that the, the quality of the vision, the quality of the story and performances. Um, cause I have to say like, you know, I thought that, um, I think by the end the film is good, mm. but I think leading up to the conclusion, like there's a lot of great stuff in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I, and I think that, Similarly with what we're talking about with it, you know, which came out a month ago, which, you know, is going to keep help Warner Brothers afloat. (laughs) It wasn't 
expecting to make that pun. Anyway, <laughs> um, we were talking about how Stephen King has influenced so many things, which therefore those things that it influenced started influencing it, you know? So it's like this feedback loop of like Blade Runner as well has influenced so many things that now those things are starting to influence the sequel to Blade Runner. So it's just like you see traces of Black Mirror kind of like mm. filter into this this new vision. And it's like it and it's I think it's it's healthy. I think it, it sort of strengthens and it's not it doesn't feel derivative. There's like a freshness to a lot of the the details in the story Mm-hmm. And a lot of just like the the sort of world that it's building, you know, like I could have watched an entire film about Ryan Gosling's character, who is one of the new Blade Runners who's hunting replicants in the future. Um, his his whole story with his holographic girlfriend. Yeah, like, hey, I could have watched like a whole spinoff TV series about them. See, that's really interesting because I've talked to a few people who f- who said the exact same thing. And I, I agree. It's one of the strongest elements of this movie. It's also perhaps one of the clearest like evolutions of, of ideas from the previous movie, you know, like yeah. this is set 30 years later and you really see in like how the technology has evolved and what that is doing to relationships in this particular part of the world. I, I, I really enjoyed that too. Um, yeah. Where I'm going to, where I'm going to differ with you slightly is um, cause I think there's a lot of great stuff leading up to the ending too. But for me, the ending is what makes this movie great. Uh, for okay. me. Yeah. I, I found the last 10 minutes like, touching like straight up emotional and uh no, I, yeah. the, the the absolute conclusion of this movie was strong i think the last kind of like leg of it where it's kind of like uh accelerating sure. and like a lot of the action is sort of intensifying sure i don't know that it makes a lot of sense <laughs> and like i think a lot of people argue that the original blade runner doesn't make sense um especially with how many cuts the movie suffered from you know right, like right. like now now what who's the how how come he's doing this to this what what the fuck you know like with this one i like the storytelling even if it does like iron out and everything sort of lines up i still was kind of like wait why did they take him and how come they didn't just kill, kill this person like, yeah, what the yeah <laughs> like there, there's it's clumsy in a way that like everything is streamlined up until a certain point, and I think that I do think that the movie is overlong, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And like, what's difficult is like how do you jenga out certain like beautiful sections of world building when so much of it like works on an on a sort of like idea sparking level, but like by the two hour mark when you've got another 45 minutes to go, I was just like, I don't, they don't really have enough story to stretch to sustain this. And then especially when certain like plot points don't line up, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. But I, again, like this, it is such, it's such a vision, you know, like, and to, it is absolutely one that I know we make this argument all the time that it gets to be like, we're, we're going to start to sound like peanuts. Parents We're like, you, this movie, big screen, like, Oh, they're doing their big screen thing. But like, it's like to see it, to see it on the size of screen. I saw it on. I'm again, Eric, I'm sorry. You had to see it on a minimized screen. You didn't see it on your computer screen or your TV screen, but you did see it in a sort of smaller room. Yeah. Yeah. One of my (laughs) least favorite theaters in town. (laughs) Um, no, no shade on living room theaters, but, um, some, it's some shade. Uh, but like, and the score, like Hans Zimmer, you know, like that, that thundering score, which like, it's just like you, you owe it to yourself. If you're curious to experience the fullness of all of those things, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and like, and, Plot points aside, like certain certain grievances of like how come the how how come they did that with this person and this person this doesn't really add up. Like there's still even in those kind of like clumsier sections, there's still awe inspiring moments. Like where Ryan Gosling, his character uh, K, uh, who is later renamed, with a good name. The whole yeah, the whole audience laughed when um, <laughs> he was named because uh, he was named Joe by his uh, lady friend. Why would they laugh? That was, 
everything they thought that was really fucking funny not like, cool. thanks guys yeah jeez uh, but like he's he's looking at this giant holographic advertisement basically and he's like interfacing with it and it's like got it's got like a godzilla stature of like hugeness mm-hmm. and like this is something i haven't seen before if i have maybe i've seen it in like anime or something like that and like right. paprika or something you know something similarly visionary but there's something about seeing an actual human being in a scale in a science fictional scale like this big and this overwhelming that's like wow i get the i get to see this and it's a fascinating image and it's like and seeing his performance which is like again another sort of like wonderfully restrained sometimes deadpan he's perfect for playing you know what what well, like he, an, he an android <laughs> basically uh-huh uh-huh um, which are, are we allowed to say that? I so I think we can at this point. Also, it's de- it's declared in the first ten minutes of the movie, so I think it's fair game by the okay. nature of movie storytelling. So I paid to see this movie, so I can say whatever the fuck I want. Exactly. I didn't sign any non disclosure agreement. <laughs> the movie's out at this point. Um, yeah. I think that's totally fair to put out there, and I, I'm with you. Um, I from just people I've talked to a lot more people seem mixed or like negative on Gosling's performance. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I are I guess in the bag for this guy, but I thought he was wonderful in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and I get why he was, this is a guy that has avoided this kind of franchise filmmaking for the most part in his career. And there's, I think there's a reason he chose Blade Runner to, I mean, he had to be offered the role, but he chose this because he probably is indebted and loves the original, I'm guessing. And then he was also right for this role. I mean, I think he's, um, uh, we talked about this on our podcast last week. Uh, Ryan Oliver had pointed it out that uh, this is an evolution of the sort of parts that Nicholas Winding Refn has been uh, developing with him. You know, he he gets to speak more in this movie than in the, those those others, but it is yeah. a, it is a, uh, an evolution and it's a continuation of what he's been doing with that. Is that like stoic, kind of quiet, sad hero? And um, I really love that. The other thing that I I want to know what you think about Joe is like that I was so taken with with this movie. Uh, part of it is 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 almost could sound like a negative because the movie is very long and it takes a long time to get to a reveal. But when it reveals that um, it, it essentially subverts the idea of the hero's journey. Uh, yeah. And I loved that about it because I, I think that um, th- this goes with what we've talked about many times in the past of like the infantilization of the audience these days. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that stems from, if you, you know, from Star Wars in 1977 on. So many movies have taken that Joseph Campbell mythology of heroes like, you know, that's their template to lead one person through a story. Yeah. And I just think like. I'm so bored with that. It's it's just been done to death in movies ever since Star Wars that for this movie to completely subvert that and be like, you think everybody thinks they're the hero of their story or that they're, I mean, it's even, this is dialogue that's basically from the movie Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. And for them to not only comment on that, but make that a part of the narrative and then still have the Gosling character do the right thing in the end. I'm with you that like I I'm excited to see this movie a second time to see how all the pieces come together and also to try to like nail down motivations for certain characters because I can't totally piece it all together. But emotionally and the way it just slowly does and methodically drives forward, I was so taken with that slow burn to get there. And then for that to be a reveal that will lead us into this third act, which I understand like you had like some issues with, but um, for me, I was just so like, I was just so pleased that a movie decided to set up something that seemed so clear and obvious to the audience. And then to be like, Nope, that's not what this is. And then he's still heroic. Nonetheless. I I just thought that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think that like, it's, you have to master that the sort of like, hero's journey storytelling in order to subvert it. And I think that, you know, pretty much everybody that's involved in this can effectively subvert it at this point. And why not, you know, like you, and, and, you know, similarly, 
like watching like let's take the hero's journey template to a movie like good time a movie that you and i both loved and that we gave the peanuts parents speech about seeing it in the theater (laughs) and it's like that's one that subverts it because it's like it takes uh, a hero's quest and then plunges it like into a into hell basically where you're like it puts a villain in the hero's quest essentially yeah and you're (laughs) like here's a person convinced he's doing the right thing and he's making like life a nightmare for everybody he interacts with (laughs) this was the second part of my weird empty movie going day which i went from (laughs) burbank to sherman oaks to see the last screening of good time nice in sherman oaks before it left theaters in the la area and uh it was it's, it was almost as empty as the video store interior. Um, there was four people in it, and there was like a guy who just the whole movie was like, oh, ooh, ooh. And I was like, I don't mind this guy. I'm so <laughs> glad he is audibly responding to this movie. Because you should be. Like, this is a visceral experience. <laughs> and like, this is something that I'm so glad you came out to sit in the dark with strangers <laughs> to experience. And That's so, awesome. Back to Blade Runner. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's interesting that like, you know, there was a, there was a village voice article about like as impressive as the new Blade Runner is, how come it does, it just doesn't give him, give me that old Blade Runner feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, because that era is gone, you know, like, and I think they're speaking to how we experience things like back then and the ability to sort of like let something creep into your imagination and you have to return to it. And there was like, there was an openness and like, this is as much an invitation to that openness as anything. Like it's not, it's a movie that does take its time, which is rare. Like there are fucking Transformers movies that are as long as this movie, but those movies are crammed full of emptiness. You know, Mm -hmm. there's like, there's no ideas at work. It's just like a frenetic beer commercial for almost three hours. (laughs) And like, this is just like, it's, it's a wide expanse of like, ideas and trying to like process things and Dennis Villeneuve as much as like I haven't loved everything I've loved enough of what he's done mm-hmm. that like he's someone who has clearly has a reverence for like the world of Blade Runner this and, movie lingers right like scenes breathe in a way that I feel like yeah. you and I have been just asking for a big movie like this to do like this is this is the other thing I loved about this film is that narratively it doesn't have like a ton but like the mystery and the sort of detective story that's going on for most of it is moving at a relatively tight clip, like in terms of like, it's, it's a tight story, but scene to scene breathes and takes times and lets you luxuriate in this, this world, this like awe inspiring world and sad world too. You know, it it lets you take in all that. And um, I feel that was one of the things I thought while watching, I was like, God, this is like the kind of pacing Joe and I have been like asking for, like, can one of these movies just breathe for God? God's sakes, you know, and yeah, and the Mad Max Fury Road comparison is interesting because that movie uh, kind of split us. And when we talked about it, but like what was interesting is how that one almost like doubled down on modern day aesthetics and pacing and like insanity and, and made it work. You know, if you like the movie, it made it work in that way. This right. one goes like the opposite and it's slower and, and more patient than the original in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. Um, I just, I loved that. I loved that. Well, I was thinking about um, <clears throat> Indiana Jones <laughs> oh. today, um, just in terms of uh, like how the the things that inspired George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were these serials that would play before, uh, I think, features like in, in movie theaters, like in, mm-hmm. you know, like a long, long time ago b- before you and I were ever, you know, dreamt into existence. Like <laughs> this was a long, long time ago. But like the the things that inspired both of them about those, like you couldn't take that formula, the serial like, you know, five minute you know thing before a feature and put that in front of a modern audience, modern at the time being the early 80s, and have that make sense. So they had to change the language of it and pack what was magical to them into this new formula that was palatable to a more sophisticated audience at that point. Mm-hmm. So George Miller couldn't like basically recreate Road Warrior for a 2015 audience. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Like there is there's stuff about his world building that would have still like deeply resonated, obviously. Mm -hmm. But like he had to like he he had to change enough of it that it could sort of like break through to to modern audiences. And I think Blade Runner is like as much as it sticks to the, the sort of like kind of like languid pacing, there is still a clip, like you said, and an urgency to it that is very much with like modern times and this like sense of like, you know, kind of helpless acceleration that we're yeah. all like l- lurching towards some like doom. And like the part of the sadness of watching like the Blade Runner world is that, you know, you're just like, well, I don't know that we're ever going to get to this level of sophistication. Like if, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's going to, it'll crumble before that. Look this. What's that? It'll crumble before we get to that <laughs> technology. I, you know, like, yeah, I feel like unfortunately the sort of like future, future envisioning of like idiocracy and Wally are closer to coming to fruition than like Blade Runner. And like the Tom Anderson who made Los Angeles plays itself talks about that with like, Mm. you know, in looking at Blade Runner, he's like, no longer do we envision like a glittering, you know, future. Now it's just like awful. (laughs) So like there is some like weird as, as claustrophobic and tight, and kind of like uh, miserable as some of the future can look at times. There's also something awe-inspiring about the future that Blade Runner envisions that's kind of closetly optimistic. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's just like, it, it's a bummer to me that like things just get toe-tagged. That, right. Like, and then everybody kind of chimes in with like, yeah, told you so. And it's like, right, well, right. You haven't even fucking seen it yet. So... I think it'll, you know, you're right. What and you're Jared saying is Leto didn't even ruin this movie. <laughs> you were so worried about Leto. I really this. was. Yeah. He's used briefly enough, I think. And I actually think he's, he's fairly well cast for very his functional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For his abilities, which, you know, say what you want about him. It, it was probably a good fit for him. I enjoy watching him get nearly punched to death in fight club. And <laughs> brush his bangs aside in my so-called life. <laughs> I, I will just say uh, maybe to close out on Blade Runner is that like, you know, we it's not going to be given the time, you know, for it to to find the audience that it really deserves. But yeah, I, I think this movie could actually have decent legs. It, it The problem is just going to be do people want to go for the You know, the reality is it's a challenging movie. It's kind of like an art house film with a blockbuster budget that has some action in it, you know, and and it's paced very deliberately and and slow but um you know if you can allow yourself at least to be open to that idea of a movie experience being different than what you're you're used to i think there's a lot that'll seep in with this one and and i can't wait to see it a second time i need to go see it on a proper big theater so um you know i'm hoping it's better on a second viewing but uh i also hope that people find it and it can just breathe in in cinemas for a while um and i maybe some of that will depend if if it gets like any awards heat whether or not that matters i don't care but yeah um, there there seems to be talk of uh the cinematographer roger deakins being considered and if he's not then something is deeply wrong with the system seriously yeah that would be that would be a sad sad mistake for sure so we're pulling for it um i'm glad you liked it even uh even with mr leto popping up in this one joe yeah i did Hey there, listeners. Just going to jump in real quick and put a shout out there for another sponsor of this episode. Uh, That is a few Criterion Collection uh, releases on Blu-ray and DVD that are worth checking out. Uh, One of their new additions to the collection would be Michael Haneke's The Piano Teacher, starring Isabelle Huppert, uh, a wonderful film from 2001. Uh, Of course, we've got Stanley Kubrick's uh, visual masterpiece, Barry Lyndon. Uh, finally presented in its proper aspect ratio, thanks to Criterion. So there's a Blu-ray of that that's out this month in October. And the Carl Theodore Dreyer silent uh, film Vampire now has a Blu-ray edition of it. So uh, so excited to, to get to watch these films on Blu-ray. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, we thank Criterion for their support. Back to the show. The next movie we're going to talk about is almost about as far away as you could get from something like uh, the newest Blade Runner movie. Uh, But it's uh, pretty magical nonetheless. Uh, And I would also say 
demands to be seen on a big screen with some great sound. And it is uh, the newest movie from Sean Baker, director of Tangerine, an AYT favorite from a few years back. And uh, his new movie is called The Florida Project. So um, I've seen this movie recently, Joe, but I believe you saw it um, a few weeks ago. Was it at a festival or? No, no, no. I, I think I saw it just the night before you did. Um, so I oh, saw it. It's open in L.A. That's what it is. Yeah, no, I saw it. I did see it at one of the last press screenings um, gotcha. before it opened. And uh, and you the next day were like, oh, my God, Florida Project. <laughs> yes, same here. Um, <laughs> you know, we oftentimes have felt like shills for A24 as much as because uh, it's, you know, they put it out. Um, yeah. And I had, you know, gripes with some of their releases, you know, like big ones, big gripes. But it's like they they are, you know, constantly putting their investment, their their money, their like resources into filmmakers they believe in. And Sean Baker is like one of those filmmakers that like takes a look at marginalized people in uh, in our society and like you know, like, to, to, I don't know. It feels like tacky and dismissive to say, like, he gives them a humanity because it's just right. like, of course they have a fucking humanity. But, like, unfortunately, that doesn't go without saying in our culture at this point. But it's like he takes a look at these, like, large, like, almost like bursting with life characters, like one in Tangerine with uh, these transgendered um, women who are, uh, you know, it's kind of like a race against time. Um, story crazy day day yeah in the life and uh just you know a few blocks away from me actually in la but um nice and that that movie was so crackling with life and just like so energetic and had such a propulsive energy to it and this is no different with children growing up uh largely in motels in florida and you know trying to sort of like eke out uh, a, a childhood, you know, amidst kind of like chaotic parents and erratic circumstances. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's just really like fascinating to take an adult view of a children's experience to have, yes. like, you know, the, the rarity of an R rated kids movie, basically, you know, there's been yeah. you know, your, your stand by me's and stuff like that. But that was done with a kind of like, there was such a, I don't know, not preciousness, because that seems kind of dismissive in its own way. With there's a nostalgia in standby, yeah, and then that's there's a distancing in that nostalgia, where it's like this is in the immediacy of the kids' perspective. Yes, and uh, and all of the the kids in it are incredible. Oh my god! One of the the most known actors, not playing a child in this, but uh, Willem (laughs) Dafoe. I don't know. I've never seen him like this. And I know. I, and I'm a Willem Dafoe fan and he plays the the motel one of the motel managers and it's just like it I don't know, it, it, he like they're again, like I feel like a shill for A24, but like <laughs> they are not only creating uh a platform for like visionary directors, but they also for films with like incredible performances, which you're most likely to get if you get the right directors, you know, like, right. And so hopping from, you know, like say Robert Pattinson's performance in good time and just being like, wow, that's like a lifetime performance. And then to Willem Dafoe in the Florida project where you're just like, wow, he really deserves, you know, awards for this he does yeah i mean here's a guy that plays like not all the time because he does a lot of movies he's one of those actors that likes to work willem dafoe but like he's usually kind of off-putting or you know he's he creeps you out a little bit he's very unusual yeah he's unusual exactly his to his look to his demeanor his inflection all, all of it right and then he is so warm and and just like you this movie plays like a series of vignettes. Uh, it's not necessarily like there's a story, but like it's almost like short stories populating one grand sort of area. And, and the setting of these hotels, like right outside of Disney World, is like that's the that's kind of where it all takes place. You know, that's 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 like the grand thing. And I loved that idea of like piecemealing 
these elements from these characters' lives and how they all interact with each other in this small little ecosystem. And then, like you said, like you you put it all from the perspective of a child. And my God, like it's so it, it's really really well thought out this movie it, it there there's a sense to it because it feels like you're watching like documentary reality at times like i don't think sean baker really was getting performances from these no. these kids um the lead is this girl named brooklyn prince she plays mooney and she's like the lead kid and her and her mom are essentially the main characters that that we're we're focusing on but it's usually from her perspective the the child and her few friends and i just love how cleverly this movie reveals and and also keeps things from the audience but also hints at enough just like you know like if you were a kid you're not going to understand the full weight of these things that you're seeing until later on yeah and the movie has that effect from like every 10 or 15 minutes you're like oh that's what that's what this is and and the other thing is like how how does sean ba- sean baker has really found something i think with his style um another movie of his that's on netflix that's worth seeing is called <clears throat> starlet um, it's a it's a nice little movie. I think he made it uh, a few years before Tangerine. So um, it's it's common in all his movies, but he's really perfecting it. Is this idea of like uh, marginalized characters or people that you don't often see in movies and that like uh, you you maybe don't even see in your life very often. Yeah. But like not not showing the reality and the toughness of that of that reality of their life, not, not lying about it or not like, um, hiding from that truth, but also <laughs> like keeping you entertained from yeah. minute to minute. Like, yeah, that, I don't know how he's done that, but most indie films go the route of like, isn't this just miserable? Like where it's, it's like a pile on and I don't know how Sean Baker does it, but he is perfecting this. Yeah. He's, he's like kind of similar to what we were saying earlier that like audiences, you know, unfortunately need to be told like he gives the audience the benefit of the doubt in terms of like, you know, knowing that these characters have substance and humanity and like they can, their, their circumstances can be kind of like, you know, tragic and unstable and like they could be in poverty, but there, there doesn't need to be a kind of like, uh, pat yourself on the back sentimentalizing of it you know like oh i understand the gravity of this situation like there is there's a there's a hilarity to like a lot you know a lot of the kids interacting in this and like you know the mother character what's a what's her name hallie in the film her she was discovered on instagram apparently by sean bria bria venate or something Yeah, yeah she's she's electric as well yeah, she's she's incredible and like and so as much as you're concerned for her and where she's going to wind up like she's 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 beautiful and she's like startling and like hilarious at times, you know, while still being kind of like tragic in her own way. Mm-hmm. And like you get all of it cuz like that's what you get with human beings. Like you get the sort of full spectrum and it's not like telegraphed to you that you're like feel bad for this person like right. you need to feel bad the entire time <laughs> you know like kind of packaging what the takeaway should be like you yeah. don't get a clean takeaway and this movie kind of speeds up to a conclusion that's like as exhilarating um as it is like devastating you know yeah. it's got like that great 400 blows quality of like oh it's all speeding up and then stops yeah and, like, Oh shit. Like, I don't that's know a how great I feel. Comparison. Yeah. Like, I don't know how I feel and that's okay. Like you right. can, you can just like take, take away the sort of like scrambled feeling and like, and just sit with it and take your time with it. Maybe that's how the two movies connect. <laughs> there you go. We found a way. <laughs> I, I, something, another thing I just loved about this movie is the way <laughs> it, echoes or compares like a lot of time through like uh, montage or like uh, parallel editing back and forth the way the mother is as much of a child as yeah, a child yeah. and that's another thing that would I think most filmmakers would sort of like be pedantic about it and be over the top like you should feel bad and it's like no this is just the reality like she didn't have a chance to grow up and mature into an adult. So now we're seeing that and we're seeing the repercussions of that. We're seeing how violence can creep in and be like, uh, almost become like a spectator sport in this world. You know, like there's, there, there's all these little moments that like 
let you see the reality, the harsh reality, the sort of depressive existence, but also it's teeming with life. And I, I, I gotta say like the, uh, the opening scene is so wonderful and funny and set you like, just opens the world up to you in such a strong way. And then like the credits, when's the last time you've heard cool in the gang celebration. And like, actually it sounded awesome. Like not, I'm not hating on that song. No, I no, like no. it. Yeah, I like it, but if if I hear it at another goddamn wedding or yeah, sure. you know, and then it comes on in the opening credits and I'm like, this song sounds brilliant and new and I like have to hear it every day right now because the movie put it in a new context and also it's a great clue to what it is. This is a celebration of these people's lives, warts and all, and yeah, freaking love that. I I just I I've been singing celebration as my girlfriend will tell you or if you ask I've been singing it like every day. I can't get it out of my head. I, I think that's that's a compliment to the movie, you know? It's uh, true because that song is like it's so omnipresent that you like take it for – it's like basically like why would you put on happy birthday the song? Like celebration <laughs> has become like it's so constant and such a – so to reinvent it basically – because you're right. It, like the second it came on, I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like it's right. – this is like this is the choice but it's just like <laughs> – that I mean, I think that song, like it's it itself, is almost found its weird marginalization because it's like mm. you ignore it basically because it's so commonplace, right? And that sense of like rediscovering what it means and like the actual feel of it is like that's 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 great. And like these people don't take the sort of like the the charms of life for granted necessarily, you know? Right, like right where you're going to eat next, what you're going to eat next. And like, you know, like, especially as a kid, like you just like, you're soaking up everything and you're, you're sort of reveling in every detail of life. You know, another amazing thing about this movie, fucking Caleb Landry Jones looks like a normal person <laughs> in a five yeah. minute. Well, performance. I mean, compared with Willem Dafoe who plays <laughs> they're in it. So <laughs> yes. Uh, for those who don't know, Caleb Landry Jones is a very strange actor. Uh, you've probably seen him. He's in the new Twin Peaks, or uh, he was in Heaven Knows What. The, he's the in Get Action. Out. He's in Get Out, exactly. Yeah, he is very good at being creepy and off-putting and weird and uh, appropriate that he would uh, be yep. related to Willem Dafoe in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was amazing. Um, another thing that I think is worth like sort of mentioning, because... Uh, this movie is out in New York and L.A., and it's going to be expanding here for the next few weeks. Uh-huh. And I I think this movie, because it's such a an amazing, like they pull off the crowd pleaser elements of this movie, that I think this one could really do well. And that probably means I'm dooming it to a box office fate that will underwhelm us, because whenever you and I seem to think we, we know a, a hit coming, <laughs> it disappoints. Sure. But yeah. I think it really could, because... Um, it's just because of all the reasons we've mentioned. It's it's this crowd pleasing yet still very dramatic reality uh, thing going on. That um, uh, anyway, po- people will be able to see it. It's coming out, and for those that remember the movie Tangerine, I've already had a, pe- a few people ask me about this one. Like, oh, is this one shot on an iPhone too? And no, n- no, it's shot on thirty five millimeter, and it is stunning. It is gorgeous yeah. the way it's shot. It's um. The DP is actually uh, a pretty incredible cinematography. Is this guy Alex Zabe or Zabe? He's worked on um, uh, 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 Carlos Regatta's last few films. The guy that did Silent Light and uh, did you ever see Post Tenebrae Lux? Do you remember that one at, at a festival? I do a few remember. Years? I didn't see it though. Oh man. Okay, so I love this filmmaker, but he is he's like a Tarkovsky like slow cinema. He's like Bellatar or like you know yeah uh, uh, one of those type of filmmakers. Um, <laughs> But I love his work, and it's just very cool that this this DP that's worked on a, some of his films is in this vibrant docu-reality, handheld, just still gorgeous, uh, immediate film. It's so opposite from Regatta's work, but I love that Sean Baker, I'm pretty sure, is a huge cinephile, and he probably was like dying to work with this guy. I just love that they like they interacted and found each other to, to make such a beautiful movie. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is not another, the the iPhone thing was so, so much of what was talked about tangerine. Well, yeah, like such a minimal, like it, if anything, it adds to the urgency of the storytelling, but the storytelling is so strong that like, it's just, it's, it's just an affectation of the movie, but it isn't like the entire movie in any way, shape or form. 
Right. It's like funny I, how people land on that. Like, that's what people remember about Tangerine. They're like, oh, is this one on the iPhone? I'm like, no, it's not like well, his thing. He had to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just another way in this sort of glut of content where things yep. have to be telegraphed to people. That's a way to bookmark it to make it notable. Like, yep. it's what, oh, he made the oh he made the whole thing on an iPhone? Well, all right, I'll put it in my queue to never watch it. Like, come <laughs> on, guys. Like, we're urging you. Uh, <laughs> we're not yeah, cynical. Yeah, <laughs> This like just the the sequence where you know uh, the main character meets a new friend and she's taking her like through the neighborhood basically and it pans across like you know beautifully shot thirty five millimeter like stretches of like strip mall Florida that are like become beautifully picturesque you know and mm-hmm. like the just the sunsets in the movie the lighting like it's all just so like so so gorgeous and such like a, a blip that you probably wouldn't notice if you were traveling through in action in real life you know and it's just like another movie that uh, you know i said would make an exhausting double feature with this was american honey from last year andrea arnold's uh totally and uh just like that the the sense of kind of struggle both of which are largely set in motels in america mm-hmm. um in the sort of like forgotten pockets of america and uh, yeah, it's just like it's a it's a glimpse that like so in in an authentic location that so often is getting just like kind of like airbrushed and green screened out of existence that like a two four it's another a two four movie is American Honey and like yep. <laughs> they're, they're continuing to sort of like fight for a sort of a glimpse of cinema that people miss but aren't really showing up for but with this one i feel like you're right that you know like the in its limited release it's already doing very well and Mm -hmm. so hopefully that can continue hope so man yeah absolutely Uh, one one last thing i'd like to say my double feature uh my like uh ideal double feature for this movie i think you make a great comparison between american honey and this but uh, the one for me that i thought of would be i would love to see this movie and then watch rat catcher the uh lynn the lynn ramsey movie they they both use that child perspective to deal with truly adult themes and and elements of the story um rat catchers probably arguably darker and maybe sadder but uh they both are teeming with life and they're so just artistically made like made with such artistic like you know like vigor and and just life all that um i think they'd make a great a great comparison so yeah rat catcher and garbage pail kids (laughs) no okay Uh, dude i (laughs) I tried to watch Garbage Pail Kids about three months ago, and I hated myself and stopped it after ten minutes because that's tough. That you was a it, movie from my youth, and holy shit, it is it is atrocious, man. Um, you know, it, it didn't like Garbage Pail Kids. The term was not introduced, like was introduced to me at such a formative point that like I didn't even kind of register how fucking dark that term is like garbage <laughs> it's meaning they were right. thrown away like hit <laughs> these kids were thrown away like fuck that's really sick like it it was recently that i was like oh jesus that's a really terrible thing to say <laughs> that's dark there's a there's a character one of the garbage pail kids in that movie joe that's called ally gator he's an alligator I get that's it. real yeah you do okay good i needed it explained to me but uh yeah alligator uh usually found in florida full circle Oh, (laughs) full circle well i I guess since we're we're jumping into tangents maybe we should wrap it up um unless there's anything else you want to you want to say about florida project and uh, please go see it as soon as you can as soon as it's available in your city yeah seriously We, we won't lead you astray folks this is this is one of the best films of the year for sure for me so um yeah check it out um so with that why don't we wrap up adjust your tracking number 154 but before we do the proper wrap-up um you reminded me of something i want to recommend to people as well joe uh by bringing up uh, steven spielberg and george lucas there is a wonderful nearly all-encompassing spielberg steven spielberg documentary on hbo right now and it's called spielberg uh, i had the pleasure of watching it yesterday before i went into work 
Joe, I, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's a pretty by the numbers. It's like De Palma, you know, it sort of skates you through his entire career. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one has lots of interviews from all the people you would sort of hope and expect to see. So you get like Coppola, Scorsese, a lot of the actors he's worked with Spielberg. Um, but this one actually, I gotta say, I got emotional watching it sometimes learning about Spielberg's, um, private life and actually learning about his parents mm-hmm. really added a shit ton for me uh, of weight and uh, thematic. Like it just made his, like all his movies stronger, you know, like there's that common thing in Spielberg's movies of the absentee dad and the broken families Yeah, and learning about what he went through and what his folks went through was crazy uh, insightful for me. So I actually found it very touching. I laughed a bunch um, and it's, I, you know, like De Palma, I, I could we get like one of these for all these filmmakers that we love? That would be amazing. I would love that. So um, I don't I don't we haven't talked about it. I don't know. Have you had a chance to watch it yet, Joe, by chance? Who, who is it about? Just kidding. No, I haven't had a chance <laughs> to watch it. Um, but uh, yeah, Steven Spielberg. I, I know. Um, but uh, I, I did love De Palma. And I think that you're right that like there's especially, you know, as things move towards, you know, streaming being how people are largely experiencing a lot of content. Like it seems a way to like re refigure everyone's interest in these films. Cause it's just like, once you see De Palma, you're like, Oh, I want to revisit most of these, you know, it's not flat out. See it, see them for the first time. And so like for a filmmaker's Canon, it puts them in a perspective and sort of re-energizes people's interest in them. And I think yes. that that's like, that's, that's always beneficial. This movie made me want to watch 1941. I've never seen it. There's a few a few Spielberg movies that I've not caught up with. It's it's that and Always, which is that really strange one that doesn't get mentioned ever yeah, from from uh, 1980. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you gonna say? I have a, my my mom's friend was a producer on that movie. Oh shit! <laughs> it's on uh, Netflix. I'm gonna watch it. Like seriously, I just want to be completist because. I think Steven Spielberg is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Even when I don't like his movies, I, I think he's a genius. And um, I, I'm so happy to just, it's just two and a half hours of just pure, you know, cinephile pleasure. Um, so yeah, I would, I would recommend Joe. I'm sure you were planning to watch it, but uh, get around to it when you can, man. It's, it was a joy to watch. I made an empire of the sun reference that landed flatly because the person didn't Aww. get it recently. Have you seen that one? I act, that's the third one I need to see uh, the fourth because I need to see Sugarland Express as well but that no I haven't seen Empire but it looks fantastic to me I, yeah. I don't know but I'm sorry you're, there's you're a joke. large crowd that I you're in danger of losing the person you're there with in the crowd I say this is like Empire of the Sun mostly to a flat response like <laughs> the band no not the band <laughs> the book no it was Based on the book, fuck this. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah. Well, they show that scene in the documentary where he loses his mom in the crowd, right? Yeah, it's it fucked. Like it's that was really traumatic. Yeah. And young Christian Bale. Come on, pre news. It's a JG Ballard book. This really yes. happened to him. Yeah, I'll take that over high rise, but that's that's a story for another day, I guess. Hey man, don't pick this fight right now. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, then I won't. Well, I would like to briefly say, in conclusion. Uh, Beyond Fest has been happening in L.A. this last week. And, you know, for all the talk we do of how movies like, you know, especially on this episode where it's it's hard for movies to find their legs like they did a good a good portion of a bunch of revival screenings this year, in addition to like premiering a bunch of films, Nice, um, like a movie like Howard the duck, which granted I did not see. They showed it in 70 millimeter and what? Like, <laughs> Leah Thompson showed up and she said this played better to this crowd than at the premiere, like 30 <laughs> years ago. I bet it did. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I don't know. There's just something they did an open letter before the festival that was just like, you know, as much as the momentum around itself and other festivals is like is great and crucial to the culture of like film going and film enthusiasm. They they like urge you to support movie theaters and especially independent cinemas. And um, I just thought that that was really, really valuable and nice. And they did uh a tribute to George Romero and Toby Hooper. Aww. That was like every, every screening sort of started with like that tribute to them. And, uh, 
I don't know. It was just like it was it was nice. And the festival ends tonight, so I'm not telling people from Los Angeles to go to it, obviously, because it's going to be over by that time. But take their word. Go to the movie. I'm going to. I mean, I haven't been to that festival uh, personally, but, you know, I think it's safe to say that they're friends of the show. You know, like we, yeah. we want to support that festival. It, you've been you've been trying to, you know, twist my arm to get down there and, and come join sometime. And I'm going to have to do that because it just looks like a blast. And it's it's festivals like that that are like staffed with people like us. You know, we've done mm-hmm. that work ourselves. We do that work. So um it's it's a it's pretty cool to see them uh, you know put that message out there because that's one we can all agree on you know support yeah. these cool theaters. So just chill to the next episode. All right, so episode one fifty four. You can find us on the playlist.net. There's a podcast tab right up top. You can find all our shows there. We're sponsored by Mubi still, so check them out if you're interested. We thank them for their support. Uh, but most importantly, uh, well, wait, I guess I'm forgetting. How can people contact us? They can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. But what about those, uh, the social media world? Hey, on Twitter, uh, at adjustyourtrack, you can find us there. Um, you know what I mean? Or Facebook. Did you already say that? No. Oh, just, uh, put in adjust your tracking. We're the podcast. We're not the movie. Um, as much as we're fans of the film, adjust your tracking. We, you know, we want you to like our page and you can find out when episodes drop. Exactly. Exactly. So be on the lookout there. We'll be very thankful, uh, but not as thankful as I am to get to talk with you, Joe. Thanks, Eric.